The French Open in 2021 hasn't been short of a narrative with the Naomi Osaka saga ending, Roger Federer's walkover, Lorenzo Musetti almost causing a major boil over, an arrest, and an unlikely women's semi-final. This is Breakpoint Podcast. I'm your host, Val Febo. And joining me, as he always does, to talk about the world of tennis is the one and only Joel Frucci. Joel, how are you going, mate? Yeah, pretty good, Val. Jesus Christ, it's been a bloody shocker day in Melbourne. How freaking cold is it? But uh, yeah, look, it's been um, been a good couple of weeks of, uh, of tennis, hasn't it? At Roland Garros, it's all going on. Um, and uh, <laughs> fortunately for us, still a little bit left in the tank. And yeah, can't wait to uh, can't wait to get stuck into it. And it's going to be good because uh, we're I'm pretty sure we're we're crossing over to Paris on the show, aren't we? Yes, we are. We've got Josh Gabalich of uh, BT Sport and doing some stuff with the first serve as well. He's on the ground in uh, Paris and uh, watching the tennis as we speak and working over there in uh, England, but he is an Australian man, so can't wait to hear his thoughts on what's happening at the French Open at the moment. But, Joel, I guess we should start with um, with what's happened over the last week. We'll start with the women's draw because it has genuinely been uh, bizarre, I'm going to say, because we have... <laughs> if, if you had to pick this semi-final... Um, at the start of the tournament, Anastasia Pavlichenkova, who hopefully we still might be able to get on uh, later on in the year um, against Tamara Zidanezek, I would have punched you, Joel. If you had kept going and said how <laughs> adamant you were that this was going to be a Grand Slam semi-final, I wouldn't have believed you, but it is a Grand Slam semi-final. We've got that, and, and it's an amazing result for Pavlichenkova, who it was her seventh major quarterfinal. She'd never beaten anybody in a major quarterfinal, and she finally did, and it was an absolute epic encounter against uh, Alina Rubikina. Uh, just unbelievable what happened. 9-7, 9-7, Joel, in the, um, in the third set. Just phenomenal. You're speechless, though. Um, yeah, I genuinely yeah, am. Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, yeah. So many stories here. I mean, first thing I'll say as well is that it's no surprise that uh, when it's come to the WTA side of the draw, we're, we're seeing some surprises at Roland Garros. It, it happens so often, and I think that's one of the real reasons that um, we, we love the French Open. But yeah, it's great. Like you're looking at look at the um, the the players that are, are still left in the draw um, at the time of recording. Um, Coco Goff and Barbara uh, Krejcikova on court now. Um, just incredible how well Coco has played, but. Yeah, on uh, Anastasia, um, it's it's nice to see her finally kind of make that that breakthrough. Um, she's always been capable of it, but um, yep. as you say, has never quite done it. Um, interesting how her and Elena Rybakina were in the doubles draw um, exactly a day ago playing doubles together, and then the next day they're they're uh, on the uh, opposite side of the court um, playing singles, but. What's going to be really fascinating is her semi-final against Tamara Zidansek, who's also got to give her some credit. She's playing some brilliant tennis, and um, her semi-final, uh, sorry, her quarter-final against Paola Badosa was a- another fantastic match. And you look at the scorelines here, and we'll start with Rybakina and uh, Pavlochenkova. So we got seven six, six two nine seven. So yes. lots of tennis being played there. Then you flick over to Zidansek and Badosa. Seven five four six eight six. So I don't know. You you just you, you get the sense that this semi final is going to be really entertaining. Potentially a couple of players with you know some some heavier legs. So yeah, it's going to be it's going to be really really interesting. But um, yeah, I mean I think it would be nice um, to see uh, to see Anastasia sort of uh, keep pushing the ceiling because she's always, as we say, been capable of it. Exactly right. And the players that she has played in Grand Slam quarterfinals before this tournament, she's lost to Danielle Collins. She's lost to Garbinia Muguruza. She's lost to Venus Williams. She's lost to Serena twice. And she's lost to Francesca Schiavoni. So all of them very good players in their own right. So a phenomenal effort for Pavlichenkova to finally break through and make that elusive Grand Slam semifinal where she honestly has a chance to go through. She She's going in as the favourite into this semifinal against Tamara Zidanezek, who herself has played some absolutely marath- or absolute marathon matches uh, throughout her own campaign this tournament. She's beaten Badosa 8-6 in the third, and that was an epic an epic match. And then if we continue going back to the second round, um, where she faced, who was it in the second round? If I, the Roland Garros draw page is absolutely killing me today, Joel. It has been playing, 
It has been playing Great tricks podcasting. on. It's been playing tricks on me all after all day and all afternoon, and it's absolutely killing me. But I will find it for you. It's yeah. coming. It's coming. Here we go. <laughs> this is terrific podcasting. Yeah, it's. Ab- <laughs> oh, this is. It's. I had it ready. I had it ready, and it's completely gone. So I don't know what's happened, but here we go. Bianca Andreescu, I'm there. 9-7 in the third. Um, Katarina Siniakova lost the first set 6-love and then won the next two 7-6-6-2. And now she's come out and beats uh, Paula Bedosa 7-5-4-6-8-6. So we're we're in, as you said, for an entertaining match. And then the uh, the uh, the top half of the women's draw as well as giving us some really intriguing narratives, including Coco Goff and, and what she's been yeah. able to do. And we're so excited about the future that she's going to bring to tennis. She's only 17 years old, and she's been playing Uno throughout uh, the it's entire so, tournament. It's it's so... How easy is it to forget as well, Val, that she's 17? Um, I mean, it's been said before. It's been said before, and it's been said a lot of times. But every time you think and we talk about Coco Goff and you remember that she's 17, it's like... What the hell? Mm. <laughs> it's just hell. Yeah, it is oh. insane how good she is for that age. It's it's quite staggering to be honest. Then ever since that first encounter in a Grand Slam, I think it was two thousand and nine Wimbledon, where she came out and beat Venus as a fifteen year old. Who does that job? <laughs> you don't just come out and beat Venus Williams at fifteen years old, and and then not have the world at your feet. And that's exactly what she's done. She's got the tennis world at their feet at the moment. She's seeded at a Grand Slam. Um, she's on the verge of possibly a Grand Slam semi-final, which is genuinely just phenomenal. And it's so exciting to watch. And um, and also, on the, on, the other, on the other side of that half, you have Iga Fiontek against Maria Sakkari, mm. both who have had very good seasons, both in fine form. And Sakari, her maiden Grand Slam quarterfinal, Sviantek, the defending champion, it's going to take a lot to get rid of her crown, and she looks she looks in fine form again. Yeah, and I mean, really, it's extraordinary how how well Eger is is playing. Um, again, really, it's almost as though uh, she's just played two Roland Garros in a row. Um, well, if you look at her results so far in the singles draw. Against Kara Yuvan, 6 love, 7 5. Uh, Rebecca Peterson, 6 1, 6 1. Annette Contivate, who's a very tricky customer, 7 6, 6 love. Marta Kostiuk, 6 3, 6 4. Um, <laughs> I mean, Jesus, that, that is bloody fantastic. It really is. Um, but then, I mean, you, if you look at Maria Sakari, you really don't know sometimes what you're going to get from her. She'd be really good, and we know how good she can be. And obviously, she's having a, a terrific. Uh, a terrific campaign. Um, I don't know, but often she can flake a little bit. But um, look, I, I think I'm, I'm pretty sure that Eager's going to going to win this match. And um, if uh, if she doesn't go on to win the win the title, I'd be pretty surprised. Well, Rafael Nadal has a 35 set winning streak at Roland Garros. Iga Swiatek is up to 20 at the moment in her 10 matches. So she's playing <laughs> pretty bloody well on that clay in uh, in Paris. So it is exciting to watch the. The future of tennis uh, apply their trade really with Coco Golf and uh, Iga Swiatek both in their teenage years still, and um, Iga what she's been able to do. And I said it at the start of the year that I see her being at least a five six time Grand Slam champion, and she's almost there. Well, she's won one already, and she's possibly yeah. going to win a second one here, which would be quite staggering for her age. So we could be in very good hands with Ash Barty um, and Naomi Osaka still at the top of their game as well. And speaking of Naomi Osaka, that saga did end uh, during the week, Joel, with her pulling out of Roland Garros, just saying that she's got depression and um, you know she hasn't felt right since the 2018 US Open and. Things are things are well and truly uh, things are well and truly over for her campaign now, and her Wimbledon uh, tournament is in jeopardy as well, which I don't really think she'll play. Yeah, well, I mean, it'd be a shame if she doesn't play Wimbledon because uh, she, I mean, really, um, you, you can see you can see Grand Slam crowns coming on, on grass because her game is so suited to the grass, but. Um, Look, I mean, all we can all we can really say, um, and we we spoke about this at length last week, but all you can really say about it is that we hope that she goes away from tennis and gets the help that she needs, really, um, and address, addresses the the problems that um, that she's facing. Because uh, the only outcome that we want is for 
for her to improve as as a person because tennis is poorer for her absence. We want to see her back on the court as soon as possible. And we do. So and, and the grass is so suited to her game as well and the way she plays. They've always called her a very a much younger version of Serena Williams and the way that she plays would suit the grass so much. And Ash Barty, of course, a champion there. So we're in for a bit of a grudge match if those two were to face off in the Wimbledon final. But Barty herself, under with her injury cloud, who knows where she's going to be? So that is a big watch of this space as well. She had to pull out against Magda Lynette in the French Open second round as well. But Joel, if we move over to the men's side of the draw, um, on one half, it's been business as usual uh, for the big well, the big two really at the moment with Roger Federer pulling out. Yep. We will get to that. Um, but on the bottom half of the draw, Daniel Medvedev, well, he doesn't like clay. We know this. And he has continued to troll people throughout this entire week and just say, no, 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 no. You know what? I'm actually not that bad on the surface, which we already knew because he's beaten Novak Djokovic in Monte Carlo before. But what he was able to put together this week in in the wins that he had, he defeated Christian Garin uh, in in the fourth round, which I certainly wasn't expecting. And then Stefano Tsitsipas, it was kind of a mirror image to what happened in the Australian Open final, uh, semi-final, sorry. Um, where Medvedev was just too clean and too good, and Tsitsipas was was in ominous form, and that the the way that he's played on the European clay this year has been ominous for the rest of the field. And should he be the one to face off against Rafael Nadal or Novak Djokovic in the final, I would be very, very, very surprised if that match didn't go the distance. Yeah, yeah, me too. <laughs> because uh, yeah, I mean he's playing fantastic tennis, and it's uh, it's good to see. We've spoken so much about uh, you know the next generation that have kind of been there or thereabouts for a little while that haven't quite made the breakthrough yet. We just want to see them start winning things, um, and we've got that that semi final now with uh, Stefanos and Alexander Zverev, who you have to say um, is playing some really good tennis. Maybe he's had a slightly Easier run, I guess you could say, but you can only you can only beat who you've uh, who you play, and you've got to give some credit to Alejandro Davidovich Fokina. He's mm-hmm. had a fantastic tournament as well. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's going to be interesting. I think both players should be relatively fresh. Um, but then, I mean, you look at the other side of the draw, and you've got Rafael Nadal, uh, who really, I think, as much as we love little Diego, Rafa probably should take care of Diego. I think relatively easily. Um, and Novak Djokovic, of course. Well, we know what we're going to get from Novak. Matteo Berrettini, I think, is a bit of a is an interesting challenge. Not really sure what to expect from Matteo. We certainly know that he's going to put up a fight, but I guess the question is just how far he can push Novak. Um, I think it's a pretty safe bet to say that Novak is probably going to win that match. Um, so yeah, I mean, it's uh, it's it's really interesting. But uh, I mean, should we talk about Val the the test? that Novak had against Lorenzo, uh, Lorenzo Mossetti because, geez, the, the first two sets from uh, Lorenzo were absolutely fantastic. But I will say this, though, before we talk about how good he is, as soon as he broke in the second set, you could just tell that Novak was going to win. Yeah. <laughs> you could just tell because... These are the matches that that he wins. Yeah, exactly right. And you see, uh, you see, even when he Musetti wins the second set, you just know it's like, well, it's essentially just a straight sets win for Djokovic now because he's so used to doing this. It's it's he's actually, I think it was only the seventh time that he's ever come back from two sets to love down, which I'm quite surprised at. I really thought that he'd done that yeah. a lot more because he is such a competitor. But we do see it a lot in the three set format where he does come from a set and a breakdown to win and. Um, he fights back from a breakdown in the fourth set or the third set or something along those lines, and you can never count him out. And that's exactly what happened. And Musetti was cramping and then had a bit of a lower back injury because of his uh, epic fourth uh, third round match against uh, Marco Cecchinato, one of our favourites on this show. And it would have been good to see. It would have been good to see uh, the, um, the Marco Cecchinato. Uh, get back into the fourth round and face off against Novak Djokovic, whom, of course, he beat in 2018 in the quarters in yeah. in what was one of the most bizarre wins that you'll ever see from anybody in the French Open. But, yeah, Musetti <laughs> was, was phenomenal. The shot-making is something that we're going to see over the next 10 years and maybe even beyond. And that one-handed backhand is glorious. The way that he moves on the clay, the way that he, he utilizes the clay to his advantage, that's where he's had his best results so far. 
and that's where I can really see him dominating first and then progressing into the grass and hard as well. So it's going to be interesting to see what he can do at Wimbledon and in the grass court swing of the season. But um, yeah, a, a phenomenal tournament nonetheless from Lorenzo Musetti. But um, another Italian, Matteo Berrettini, got through his fourth round encounter against Roger Federer. Well, it wasn't even an encounter because Federer pulled out before <laughs> a ball was even hit, Joel. And this is what I wanted to discuss with you. Federer has well... It's well documented now that the grass court season is the start of his real season and Federer has been using the first six months of the year as kind of a tune-up. He played in Doha, lost in the in the quarterfinals to Nicolas Basilashvili after two matches, beat Dan Evans there and then lost to Pablo Andujar in Geneva two weeks ago. So he's only played three competitive matches before Roland Garros. Comes out, beats Istamin fairly comfortably, survives a really big test against Marin Cilic, who uh, it's a match that Federer needed against the big, clean, um, clean hitting forehand, big forehand, big serve, that type of player on a quick clay, so it kind of gets him in the in the swing of things for grass, and then also against Dominic Kepfer, who's a lefty, strikes the ball hard, and gave Federer a really big test in an in a marathon three hour. And forty-five, I think three hour thirty-five minutes or something along those lines. It was it finished at about one a.m. in front of no crowd at uh, Court Philippe Chatrier. So it was a bizarre one to watch. But what I'm concerned with, and look, I, I know you've got a couple of different views to this, but I am. Yeah. We all know on this show, I am one of Roger Federer's biggest Fed fans. I love the man. <laughs> Whatever he does well, turns to absolute. <laughs> Pardon. One of, aren't you the biggest? Oh, I would like to admit, I would like to assume that I am, but I'm sure there's always someone that knows a little bit more than what you do about Roger Federer. But yeah, I, I, I love Roger Federer, and everybody knows that on this show. But what he did was wrong, in my opinion. I've written an article for the first serve as well, questioning his decision to even participate in Roland Garros when he was using it as a warm up event. And it's like, should you really be using a Grand Slam as a warm up event? And I get the the arguments that, you know, he needed to see if he could last a full Grand Slam match or a few full Grand Slam matches in a row, which, yes, he's done that now. Um, you know, to get the match practice in, yes, he's done that. It could have been a scheduling issue as well. Um, but to to play in the tournament and then know pretty much that you're not going to finish it and keep stating that it's a warm-up event, I'm not sure that that was the right move for Roger Federer because there have been lead-in tournaments um, for Roland Garros, which he could have played. He was supposed to play Madrid originally. Yes, the, the rehab didn't go as quickly as he would have wanted, so that kind of halted his sort of preparations a little bit. But could he have played a challenger event last week? Could he have you know, done a couple of other things and really set himself up for the grass court season without playing Roland Garros and taking some player that, that didn't make the cut? He's taken his spot in the draw and... Those players would kill for an opportunity to play in a Grand Slam because it's such a massive pay packet, especially getting to the fourth round. So that that's where my argument is coming from. And if Naomi Osaka isn't mentally fit to fulfill all of her obligations in the media and whatever she needs to do on court, don't play. And if Roger Federer is not physically fit to fulfill all his obligations and not even participate in his match against Matteo Berrettini... I don't think he should have played. So that that's that's where that's where I'm coming from. But I, I know you've got a little bit of a different opinion from the tournament's point of view. So um, yeah, so if you want to elaborate on that, and then we can talk about that afterwards. Mm. Yeah, no, you said it well, mate. Um, yeah, I, I guess look, I didn't like it either. I'll, I'll say that. I'll say that straight up. Um, this, we've spoken a lot about you know the involvement of. Uh, the the press and the media and broadcasters in the last couple of weeks in tennis and and how important it is. Um, yeah, you know, I guess one thing that I think of, first and foremost, you know, you feel sorry for the fans because uh, obviously Roger Federer has you know, supporters in every corner of the world. And look, we know that uh, at the French Open, there's this year anyway. There's only so many people that um, are allowed in. There's there's crowd caps, um, but also you think of all the people watching around the world that would have been obviously unbelievably disappointed not to see him continue. Uh, I did think it was a little bit disrespectful to the, the slam itself. Um, and in a, in an actual performance sense, what, you know, I, I look at a match with Matteo Berrettini on clay and think, you know, even if he is looking ahead to the, to the grass, um, if, 
coming back from a year off, what a what a great test coming up against Matteo Berrettini. I would have I would have played. I mean, obviously it's easier for us to say from afar, but certainly I think from that perspective, if I was in Roger's shoes, he knows his body best. But I would have played. Um, and then and then I think think I think of things from an organisational point of view. Um, the Fr- uh, French Federation have their obligations to forecasters, to sponsors, and it, they would have been devastated not not to see Roger Federer keep uh, keep playing. And you, you could make the case that you know maybe it was only one match; he might not have beaten Matteo if he had a play. But uh, you know, I, I can't help but think uh, there would have been uh, a, a real void in in certainly metrics um, when it comes to. A Roger not being there, and and B the fact that uh, it was a match that was actually not played. Yep, and the Grand Slam did feel different to all the other ones that we've seen since the Australian Open in two thousand and twenty. The fact that Roger Federer was there and playing in a Grand Slam, it kind of made it whole again that we had all members of the big three there because we've kind of uh, we it, it, there was this null feeling when Federer wasn't here in Melbourne and when he wasn't at the French Open and when he wasn't at the US Open last year. It was very strange. So I think, um, and I think you're right, Joel, I think from a metrics point of view, I don't really like it. And I understand that, yes, he finished the match at nearly one o'clock in the morning, but, you know, even he doesn't, and he's never retired mid-match. So I think Federer would have wanted to have kept that alive because he doesn't really like doing that. And that might've hurt his body even more if he did do that. But yeah, it, it begs the question, should he have actually played? So, and, and look, I don't think he should have, if he wasn't a hundred percent fit, there's challenger tournaments that he could have used, but I get with scheduling and I get with his preparation that this just might've all aligned, but all in all, and I think the prize money should probably be donated to one of the ITF player funds because, um, you know, essentially you've taken up a spot when you, when you've well documented that this is a warm up for you. So that's where, yeah, that's where I reckon Roger Federer should put his prize money from Roland Garros. If he doesn't, then yeah, I think I think there's an important distinction though. Uh, you know, I think when we talk about players that missed out on the draw entirely, I think that's a valid point. Um, and yes, I do feel for any player that you know might have been able to clinch that that spot had Roger not played. I think when it comes to people talking about players that were actually in the draw though, like a Dominic Tepper, for example, I think Andy Murray made this point on, on Twitter that um, you know if if they if they were good enough to, to beat Roger, uh, clearly not 100% underdone Roger, they probably would have and would have progressed. So, uh, look, from, from that point of view, I don't necessarily feel for the players that he played against. Um, no, I don't know. I don't either. I, it's more the players that weren't yeah. in the draw. I, for Istvan, yeah. Cilic and Kepfer, they weren't good enough to beat him. They don't. Yeah. They, there's no way that they deserve to be any further in the slam. It's the people that missed out on their spot in the slam. So someone outside the yeah. top 100, like a Mark Polman's or something like that. In that sense, yes, I agree, 100%. Yeah, that's where, that's where I'm coming from in that sense, that Federer has taken someone outside the top 100 spot in the slam when he knows it's going to be a warm-up. When And Ben Rothenberg tweeted it, and I thought it was a perfect tweet, that Federer is using Roland Garros as a warm-up for Halle, which is a 500 tournament. And then at the end of it, he just <laughs> said, iconic, yeah. which it kind of is. So... Unbelievable scenes at Roland Garros, and and I think that's probably the last time we do see Roger at the French Open, and I think if he does continue to play, he'll bypass the clay season altogether and focus on the Australian Open, Wimbledon, and the US Open, the three Grand Slams he's had the most success at instead of just the one solitary win at Roland Garros and to try and add to his major tally as he uh, gets into the, or well and truly gets into the twilight of his career. But Joel, I think it's about time we get to Josh Gabbley's shoes on the ground at Roland Garros. We can't wait to talk to him about what's going on, so stay tuned. And we do have him on the line now from BT Sport and The First Serve, of course, our great friends at The First Serve on this podcast. Josh Gabalish joins us. He's on the ground at Roland Garros. Um, it's somewhere where Joel and I would love to be. Josh, thank you very much for joining us on the show. How are you going? Very well. Thanks, Val. Great to be with you and Joel on this beautiful Paris morning. It's been a, uh, a very pleasant uh, 10 or 11 days so far and Day 11 is uh, it's a bit game-changing in Paris. I got here the night before Roland Garros started and there was a strict curfew at, at 9pm. Obviously, if you're working at the tournament, you had an exemption to move around, which was great, but there's obviously nothing open 
after 9pm, but everything just changed today and there's 13,000 people expected to turn up today and I'm sure you've noticed some of the, these night matches and some of these matches throughout the days on Court Philippe Chatrier have had like 100 people. The Ash Barty match when she retired, there was like 100 people. Today, we're looking to have 5,000, so it's going to be game-changing today. Well, thank heavens for that because we do know what curfews are like and we know when people do have to leave. We saw that at Novak Djokovic and Taylor Fritz at the start of the year at the Australian Open. So at least they've started matches at 9 o'clock like you were telling us off air and that they haven't really had to deal with any of that sort of stuff, which has been good. But um, what has the vibe actually been like throughout the tournament? You said there's only been 100 people in Philippe Chatrier watching the world number one, but how have you found it actually being on the ground and, and what have you enjoyed? What have you disliked and what's the general feel like? Well, the great thing about being here is with so few people is you get to sort of see everything and get more access than you'd get if it was a traditional major with thousands more people, hundreds more media. So the access from that perspective is great, albeit press conferences and interviews are done by Microsoft Teams, which isn't great and which is a bit of a weird process to go through with, you know, sending your questions through and, and all that sort of stuff. But the difference is, I think, you, especially thinking back to an Australian Open, it's such a multicultural crowd. You get people coming from all over the world for the Australian Open. And it's like that with every major. But given the current landscape, there aren't any tourists here. So aside from the French matches, and there have been plenty of French in the draw across the first 10, 10 11 days now, they had all the atmosphere. So it's a bit of a, a unique time because if you think it's the Australian Open, whenever there's a major name like a Rafael Nadal or a Roger Federer, the Melbourne crowd gets right behind them like they're mm. their own. It's almost like they're at Lake Hewitt or a Pat Rafter. It's not like that here because we just haven't had the numbers. But to be honest, it's it's just been a treat. I haven't seen live sports since I covered uh, Hawthorne Brisbane on that Sunday when Gilbert McLaughlin closed down the season at halftime of that game at the MCG. <laughs> so it's a treat to be seeing live sport and I've really appreciated across the first 10 or 11 days. Hey, Josh, when it comes to Roland Garros, I remember last year, obviously because of the pandemic and the, the tennis calendar was thrown into a fair bit of chaos. One of the things this year that's made it a whole lot more watchable is the fact that it's kind of back to where it belongs at the end of May, start of June. Last year, it was obviously in the French autumn and it was just really bleak, really dark, really dreary, and it made it a whole lot more unwatchable. And we can see now on, on our screens, um, we can see where you are um, on, on Zoom and it looks like an absolutely beautiful day. So, I mean, like just from a, a viewing perspective, I don't know if you can kind of feel that, but like from, from where we are in Melbourne, certainly from from where I've been watching it, um, in the lounge room, in the bedroom, whatever, just the fact that it's sunny and it's nice days and it's back where it belongs, it just makes it, I think, a whole lot more watchable as well. It's such a great point, Joel. And I, I felt the exact same way last year in that October setting where it was dreary, the roof was closed because of the weather. And I don't like tennis under a roof. I really don't. I mean, even at Rod Laver Arena. I just don't like it. I just don't like it at all. So being back in this time slot, it, I grew up watching this, you know, tournament like you two late at night, like at Wimbledon as well, like the Tour de France. Like I like to see the Tour de France of Roland Garros in beautiful conditions and see some of the city on the TV. So you're spot on. I think it, it makes a massive difference, the fact that it's been played in the traditional time slot, albeit got pushed back a week, which when it got pushed back a week, I was like, is that really going to change anything in terms of COVID? What will a week do? I think it's different in Australia. A week can change things in Australia. A week in Europe, not much changes week to week over here, but it's fantastic <laughs> that it's uh, that back in that traditional summer slot. Yeah, it has been nice to watch, and that sunshine behind you is something that Joel and I are very envious of with the with the poor weather that we've had in Melbourne today, just wet and dreary and terrible. So um, if we can get some of that, that'd be great. But um, the big three, same half of the draw for the first time in a Grand Slam. How have you found their performances, and how have you found that they've ticked along throughout the tournament? Joel and I have discussed Djokovic and Musetti, but Nadal's looked pretty good, and then the whole Federer issue, and we've discussed that as well. Should he have played? So what are your thoughts on on the big three so far? Well, it was really fascinating, Val, when they were drawn on the same side of the draw because we just don't see that happen and you expect to get to a semi-final stage and have two of the big three in the final at the end of it. So it, it was a real interesting storyline heading into the tournament. Obviously, it hasn't eventuated. We know what's happened now 
with Roger Federer. And I've read a lot of the Australian media around it, and it's very different over here. The field wasn't so critical of Federer. I think I think you've got to take into account what's happened in the past 18 months. If it was pre-pandemic, I think you could be a lot more harsher on him. And then you think about what's happened since the 2020 Australian Open in this pandemic. He's barely played. He's played three tournaments. He's had two separate knee surgeries. He's 39. And it's an individual sport. He's, he's not running around for Collingwood on the weekend on Queen's birthday and going, you know what, I've got a corky. I'm not going to I'm not going to get up for this game. It's very different when it's an individual sport. It's only you out there on the court. His priority has always been Wimbledon, always been the grass. He was always going to be a long shot here coming off limited preparation. He lost a few weeks ago in Geneva and was a mile off. So it was surprising that he played so well in those first three matches to start with. So I can understand the critics. It's a polarising, it's a really polarising topic, not not dissimilar to Naomi Osaka. There have been two of the major stories of this tournament because people sit on two very different sides of the fence and there's not too many that really sit in the middle. But I think you can understand both sides of the argument. Looking at the other two in the big three, I mean, they're both humming. I, I really did think that they'd have a a, uh, a real struggle in the in the in the fourth round, and, and don't get me wrong, Novak Djokovic fell two sets behind, but from that point onwards, Musetti barely won a point. I think he won twelve points for the rest of that match across the last three sets. And speaking of pulling out of a tournament, I mean that was a much worse move, I think, by Lorenzo Musetti. I understand he's nineteen, but he admitted post match he didn't have an injury. He was just cramping. It was just, I understand it's his first five setter, but it wasn't a grueling, grueling five setter. No. He lost six one in the third. He lost six love in the in the fourth. He was four love down in the in the fifth. It was hardly like it was this endurance clash that had really taken out of him. So I thought that was a much poor, much worse decision than Roger Federer pulling out. The argument that, that maybe Federer should have pulled out in his match and allowed Dominic Kofer to go through to the fourth round that makes no sense to me. No. I'd much prefer him to see him get the job done and then make a decision on on his body. So. The other fact there is it's a short turnaround this year between Roland Garros and Wimbledon because of the week that was cut off because of the way that Paris was shuffled back. So he's got a week less to prepare. In a perfect world, you don't see it happen, but nothing's perfect right now at all, Val, is it? No, not at all, and you're you're absolutely right. So, yeah, I think I think Roger Federer... And, look, I've got very conflicting um, thoughts on this as well. Like, I agree with you and what you've said, but I also, like... Should he have taken the spot of a younger player? That's what we discussed as well. And then also from an optics point of view, like how does that look? So th- there's so many different ways that you can look at this, isn't there? Yeah, you're definitely right. But I wouldn't have liked if he he was in control of that match against Kofer. And I mean, it was a really in- intriguing battle between those two. And it, it finished quite late. I think that was a factor as well. The fact that Federer in his first night match out here because... He's been playing here since 1999. This is his first time under lights at Court yep. Philippe Chatrier. No one's there for that match. No one is there. It's, it was just, and then he, and then yep. he's so good with the media. Then he's doing, a, you know, a media at 1:30 in the morning via Microsoft Teams. It was just an odd, odd turn of events. And I think the feeling when I arrived the following morning was, we don't expect him to go through no. with this fourth round match against Matteo Berrettini, and it, it grew throughout the day, and then. Through the Roland Garros organisers, he released a statement at around 4.30 that afternoon and, and it just confirmed everything that we thought. But it really did blow up in Australia much more than it has over here and back in the UK as well. Just before we uh, talk a bit about the, the ladies, Josh, really interested to get your take on the other side of the men's draw because, of course, on one side, we're, we're definitely going to get one of the big two, Rafa or, or Novak, in the final. But I think everyone's excited about um, and we, we continue to wait for this next gen to come through and, and for more of these guys to join Dominic team and winning Grand Slam titles. We've got Alex Verov and Stefan Osicipas, and both guys I think will be relatively fresh going uh, going in. So uh, what do you make of those guys, and uh, do you like one over the other? Well, I like them both. I, re- I really do, and they've just got that sort of spunk, like they're part of this next gen, and we assume that they'd have a Grand Slam by now, but just because the quality and longevity of Djokovic and Nadal and Federer to a certain degree as well, that, those two haven't broken through yet. So maybe this is the this is the tournament that it finally happens. And there's so much interest 
in Greece in Greek tennis right now because of uh, Maria Sakari as well, who's in the quarterfinals of the women's. It's a great time in Greek tennis, just like it's a great time in Italian tennis, which has been such a big storyline throughout the week, up leading into the fourth round. Obviously, we spoke about Musetti before, but yeah, I really like those two. They're so exciting, and it's a, it's a big challenge next. It, it really, it's, it's that's going to be one of the matches of the tournament, no doubt, just because of what's at stake for those two. And we know Sitsipas reached the semi-finals here last year, and it, it looked like it could have been his breakthrough tournament. Obviously, he fell to Djokovic, but he's a better player than what he was in October last year. You think on clay and. Maybe this is the time we finally see a breakthrough for one of them. So who knows? It's going to be a really exciting it's, – it's, it's a fascinating part of the draw, the fact that you've got Nadal and Djokovic on the same side. So it means we're going to have one of these up-and-coming stars in the final. And that's exactly right. And we and Tsitsipas was so good against Nadal in the Barcelona final and pushed him to a, a deep three-set match in, the, in that encounter. So hopefully we can see Tsitsipas or Zverev come through. He's got a lot to prove after the US Open final as well last year. But moving over to the women's draw, it's been quite stunning. Joel and I talked about it. Tamara Zdanzek versus Anastasia Pavlichenkova. They've both come off marathon matches in their quarterfinals. And then you've got the top half, which has a 17-year-old Coco Golf. You've got Maria Sakari, last year's winner, who's still 19 years old in Iga Sviantec. This is one of the most bizarre women's draws in a Grand Slam that we've seen in a long time. What have you made of it? I think one of those, one of those tournaments where every day in the first week a big name top 10 seed fell. Yeah. And then when you include Naomi Osaka pulling out of the tournament on day two and then you factor in Simona Halep not even coming to Paris due to injury, it was incredible the amount of high-end quality wasn't in the field. And it's, it, ha- it does happen, especially at the French Open, it seems to happen in the women's quite often. Clay courts is one of those surfaces that throws up unknowns at different times. We saw that last year with Schwintek. I mean, the fact that she was a 19-year-old from Poland who was still sort of deciding whether she went with university full-time or pursued her tennis properly when she arrived in Paris, the fact that she left at the end of the tournament as a Grand Slam winner at 19 typifies that. It's just amazing... What, ha- what can happen in the space of a fortnight in women's tennis sometimes. So it's been incredible the amount of seeds that have fallen. And Schmittek's the only one left from, from the, the top 10. I think maybe now, I think of the top 13 seeds, she's the only one left. So it's just incredible. Pavlichenkova has been the one for me that's been a really, really fascinating story. She made the quarterfinals here in 2011, back a decade later. It's just, it's been incredible. She's had... A lot of a lot of injuries over the years, and and being a, a junior world number one doesn't often translate to becoming a, a top liner on the WTA tour. It's taken her a long time to sort of bank all that. Six attempts at a quarterfinal stage yesterday, she got through to a semi-final for the first time, and she's been a pretty big story this week, especially across Europe because in 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 Belarus there are two massive names in in the sporting world. Obviously in the tennis world, but not just in tennis, but in sport. And that's Azarenka and Sabalenka. And in consecutive matches, Pavlochenkova knocked them off. So not sure if that Russian is going to be too welcome in Belarus anytime <laughs> soon, but I don't think she'll be too concerned because her form here has been sensational. I watched her in, in the second round. She knocked off Isla Tomjanovic, one of our hopes. And, and I thought leading into that match, Tomjanovic had a really good opportunity and it was very one-sided that match. So... It's just been one of those tournaments on the women's side of the draw that you see every now and then at a major, but more often than not at Roland Garros. So it's been incredible. I mean, I thought Serena Williams had a really good opportunity because of the amount of seeds that had fallen. Obviously, Ash Barty in the second round as well, following Naomi Osaka two days earlier. So the, the draw had really opened up in a, in a great way for her. So she's missed that opportunity to draw level with Margaret Court and, and the race goes on. It's been four years now since Serena last won a Grand Slam title. She's been in four finals since then, two semifinals, and she's not going to have too many more opportunities to draw level with the great Margaret Court. Yeah, and uh, well, I mean, I, I I hope she does. I think it would be a great reward for someone who's been a yeah. tremendous servant of, of the game. But, I mean, talking of Serena and uh, an American women's tennis, Josh, um, I love that uh, American women's tennis is in such a great place. And obviously they've got the luxury now of Coco Goth coming through. And I think we've, we tend to run out of words. I think sometimes 
for how good she is. I mean, just a just a quick word on her because we talk about her, and it's easy to forget that she's still seventeen. Well, that was the biggest thing for me this week. You forget that she's seventeen because I feel like she's been around for five years now. I, I thought, oh, she must be around twenty. And then the first piece that I wrote about her this tournament. You remember, hang on, she's 17, and I watched her play doubles with Venus Williams, uh, I think in the first round, and it was just two generations. Like, they're 20 years apart, it was it was just a really awesome sight. I think that's one of the great things about coming to a Grand Slam is you get to go and see some of those doubles and mixed doubles matches which combine either young stars or ageing stars, and that was a real treat for me because I love I love Venus and I love what Coco's doing, and the fact that she's in a quarterfinal for the first time on the clay is just is pretty significant as well. I mean, she obviously broke through at 15 and, and became a pretty big name, and it's taken a little bit of time, I think, to deal with all the, the scrutiny that comes with the tennis world, which is obviously in the news at the moment with Naomi Osaka, and I think that's going to continue to play out leading into Wimbledon, how tennis players are dealt with by the media going forward. But in terms of Coco, I think this has been such a mature performance. And she's on court at the moment and won the first set, I believe. I've been on no, she's radio lost in the UK, it. so correct me if I'm wrong. She's she lost dropped it. it. Yep, dropped it. So oh, well. dropped it. Okay. okay, so intriguing because she was in a really strong position when I went on air and then I came out here. So intriguing. So who knows? Okay. I thought she was uh, sort of moving towards a semi-final, but maybe I've counted my, counted my chickens. But nevertheless, if if she's to fall here, she's been sensational. And I think leading into the grass, she could do anything at Wimbledon. We've seen she reached the fourth round there a few years ago. So she's exciting. And, and, and you're right, Joel, like, it's such a great time for women's tennis in America with Sophia Kennan, who was a little bit disappointing in the end here because she was in a commanding position in terms of the draw as well, yeah. and she was such a big talking point leading into this tournament because she dropped her dad as her coach. I mean, it just became much more of a talking point. I'm sitting uh, right with the American press and someone from from uh, a couple of people from Canada, and you just ask because they cover the tour week to week, and this has been bubbling away for a long time. I mean, you see ugly parents in sport a lot, but you see it a lot more often in tennis just because of the dynamic and. The fact that you you really start training from five or six, and that was the case with Sophia Kennan. So it would have been a fantastic story for her to come out here and, and go deep into this tournament, but she did fall a couple of days ago. So Jennifer Brady is another one. Sloane Stephens, who was quite disappointing yesterday, but there's so much quality that are all seated here. So it's a pretty special time for American women's tennis. Danielle Collins is another one, of course. Yep, Grand Slam, uh, two-time Grand Slam semi-final. She's an absolute superstar, Danielle Collins. So, like the men in Italy, the women in America doing very, very well. But I must ask you, Josh, your picks for both sides of the draw before we do let you go. So we'll start with the men. Who beats who in the final? And then we'll get your, your women's predictions as well. I'm going to be quite boring and say that we're going to have the same winners here that we had last year. Great so, minds, great minds. <laughs> Yeah, I just I just think that their form has been just bang on to this point in the tournament. Haven't 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 gone out on a limb in, in any way. I haven't needed to just yet. Obviously Nadal hasn't dropped a set here for I think it's twelve matches in a row now. It's just been an incredible run. I think he's up thirty three wins in a row at Roland Garros. He's obviously a thirteen time Grand Slam winner here in Paris. So I think he'll he'll get through today. And then I think he'll get through against Novak Djokovic on Friday. And then I think he'll face Tsitsipas in the final, in a rematch of last year's semi-final. And I think he'll prove to be too strong. Uh, the women's side of the draw. Um, so, yeah, Schwantek, I think. Who's she going to play? It's a tough one. We genuinely had no idea as yeah. well. Yeah, this side this side is 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 tougher. I was I was hoping to say Coco, but that might be wrong by the time this uh, this. Well, they're on the same there, side so. of the draw anyway. So she's down oh, seven are, six three love at the moment as we speak. Coco Golf. So Krejcikova looks on her way. Yeah. Okay. Well, well now you're going to have to come back to me on this one. 
I think uh, it's just too hard to tell with, with the women's draw predicting anything. But I do think yeah. this one takes too good yeah. at the end of the uh, at the end of the week. So she could be a two-time Grand Slam winner at, at twenty, which is surprising when you when you really think about where she's come from in the past twelve months. It's just incredible her form. Yeah, she's been genuinely unbelievable. And Joel and I have said I think she's won. Uh, She's won 20 consecutive sets so far at Roland Garros as well without dropping one last year. So she's in ominous form heading into the uh, the pointy end of the tournament. And Josh, love your work, mate. You've been an absolutely fantastic addition to the first serve and doing wonderful things over there in Europe, mate. And thank you for giving us your time on Breakpoint Podcast. Hopefully we'll speak to you very soon. Thank you very much, Josh Gablish. Pleasure, Val. Pleasure, Joel. Great to chat to you. I'll chat to you again soon. Josh Gabalish there from BT Sport and the First Serve joining us to chat all things Roland Garros. And, geez, it's been an exciting tournament, Joel. And I think one thing that was extremely exciting, we're going to discuss right here. Well, not exciting for the person involved, but we're going to discuss in our favourite segment <laughs> of the week and Benoit of the week. And it, it is it is growing legs, this thing. We get people messaging us going, we're demanding for the Benoit um, demanding yeah. who, to know who it's going to be early, but we have to tell them, we have to fight them off and say, no, 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 you've got to wait, you've got to listen to the show. So do you want do you want to do it this week or do you want me to do it? You can fire away. Man. All right, I'm going to fire I'll, away. I'll, 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 add, I'll add some meat to the bone once you put it on the table. Oh, that sounds very nice, Joel, and you're making me kind of hungry as well. I've just eaten, but I think I want another meal now. Yeah. But, um, look, it was very scandalous because there was a match-fixing allegation at Roland Garros in 2020 involving Yana Sizakova, but nothing really came of it until this week where she was arrested following her match after following a 6-1-6-1 loss with Ekaterina Alexandrova to the Australian pairing of Storm Sanders and Isla Tomjanovic. What? How does this happen? How, why did it take, why did it take six months and, or seven or eight months and B, during a tournament, have you ever seen, this is like a military coup where they've just, where they've just waited for someone <laughs> at, at, like out on a gate, at the gate, at the airport and the police are waiting and they're waiting for some criminal to get off the plane and they're waiting to transfer oh. them to jail. But this is exactly what it's like. It's bizarre. So she's had a loss and then she finally, she's like, oh, finally I can get off the court. I can go home. And then you got the police waiting for you. <laughs> First thing I'll say is that sometimes investigations do take some time. So in that sense, I wasn't particularly surprised. I actually do remember the game in question quite distinctly. I remember there was, I remember there was some reports the next day that I think it was from uh, Bill, the German newspaper. They were uh, saying that uh, they were looking, they were looking into it in terms of uh, match fixing because I'm pretty sure she double faulted on every single point um, and, and did so in quite a quite an interesting way that didn't really inspire a great deal of confidence but look it's it's really no surprise to see something like this happen because unfortunately players like that ranked outside the top 100 in doubles ranked outside the top 700 in singles are incredibly vulnerable to people like this in, in match fixing um they obviously don't make enough money to sustain tennis as a living so you know as bad as it is when these you know, for lack of a better term, opportunities come along. It's pretty hard for them to turn it down. So, look, I'm, I'm not, I'm not excusing the behaviour, but all I'm saying is, it's no surprise. No, it's not at all. And the matching question was at Roland Garros last year, as I said. It was uh, with uh, Sizakova and Madison Ringel losing seven six six four to Romanian pairing of uh, Andrea Mitu and Patricia Maria Tig. Uh, and it was a game in the second set that was that required a break of serve. There were hundreds of thousands of euros uh, bet on that ma- on that exact game to be broken. So that yeah. uh, brought a lot of questions and a lot of intrigue. And obviously, they found enough grounds to arrest. So this is um, this is a bizarre, bizarre news piece and narrative that will uh, that we'll get to the bottom of hopefully uh, within the next <laughs> week. And we can bring you the news of uh, the Sizakova saga after the. Osaka saga. We've got a lot of sagas on the show uh, this year, and it seems as though there's no signs of slowing down as of yet. But um, that's about it for us today, Joel. But look, next week we'll review Roland Garros, and also what's coming up. What is coming up that you're very excited about? Oh, what's coming up that I'm excited about? Mm. Oh, do you put me on the spot here, mate? Am I supposed to be remembering something? Well. 
it's it's a green it's green. We missed it oh, last grass. year. Yes. Yes. Grass. Yes. I am so excited. I cannot wait. Wimbledon came up on my Instagram feed the other day, and oh my god, I was just salivating. I cannot wait for it. Neither can I, and we're uh, we're in Stuttgart this week as well, and um, we're so excited. It's so good, and the ATP put up a lot of, has been putting up a lot of um, posts about the about the grass court season and what we've missed over the last year, and it's so exciting to have it back because it genuinely does bring a lot of the old-fashioned style tennis, the dive volleys, the serve volleys. A lot of that comes back into fruition. And it's just such an exciting month. And I wish it was longer. It should be longer. Um, and it's just great to have grass back on the calendar. And we do need a grass Masters 1000. That's what I'd really love to lobby for. And, yeah, it's so, so good to have it back. So, Joel, I'll see you then. We're going to talk a lot more about grass. And, um, yeah, we'll review what happens at Roland Garros. Who's your pick? Uh, look... Okay, straight up, on the men's side, I'm going to be boring and say Rafa. I mean, how can you not, really? Yeah. Um, and on the women's side, it's going to have to be eager. She yeah. is just playing so well. Uh, I, I can't see anyone topping her. Yeah, I'm afraid I'm going to have to go exactly the same way as you, mate, because... Huh. Yeah, fun. It's <laughs> unfortunately not this week. Um, so, look, you're gonna, uh, the listeners are going to have to have a lot of fun on our behalf, but... Yeah, I, I don't think it's going to go any other way. I think it's uh, Nadal and Sviantec that are going to be the hard ones to beat. They just have such a knack of knowing what to do at Roland Garros. And if it doesn't happen, it doesn't happen. Then we're we're pleasantly surprised. But yeah, it's um it, it's going to be a great end of the tournament. It always is at the French Open. So fingers crossed we do get that. But Joel Frucci, thank you very much for your efforts today. And uh, we'll see you next week. Pleasure as always, mate. See you then. This has been Val Febo and Joel Ferrici on Breakpoint Podcast talking all things tennis and all things Roland Garros. Remember, you can follow us on Twitter at Breakpoint Pod, Instagram, Breakpoint Podcast, Facebook, the same as well. And subscribe on Wooshka, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts as well. We are all on there. So wherever you get your podcasts from, we're there. Uh, big thank you to Josh Gablish as well for joining us on the program live from Roland Garros. An amazing uh, chat and amazing insight to see his thoughts on the tournament this year. We'll catch you next week, guys.